God forever and ever. Amen. That prayer was from the Common Book of Prayer, which we will discuss this evening. This is uh, Pastor Kyle's copy. I just walked into his office and grabbed it. So I'm sure he, if you're, if you're watching, I'm sure you won't mind. If, if you do mind, if you do mind, you're not here. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put it back where I found it. So, so all right. Any questions from last week? Anybody remember what we talked about last week? <laughs> Zwingli and Calvin, right? People, dead people. We talked about dead people in dead languages, right? The Anabaptists. Any questions, concerns about that? All right. Then let's jump straight into this for tonight. Uh, but first we need to do the Nicene Creed. So, church, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him... All things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. All righty. So here we go. We're going to look back at Germany for a few minutes, and then we're going to get into the English Reformation. All right? So what's going on in Germany at this time? Well, while Martin Luther is... On his way back to Wittenberg, remember, he's kidnapped by orders of his prince, the elector, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, and he's taken to Wartburg. I have a picture of Wartburg around here somewhere. There it is. Okay, this is Luther's room in Wartburg Castle. This is where he did all of his writings and uh, the translation of the Old and New Testament at that uh, very desk right there. Uh, per Frederick's instructions, he didn't even know where Luther was being hidden. And the rumor was going around that Luther had been murdered by orders of Pope Adrian VI, who succeeded Leo X. Leo X died in December 1521. The Edict of, or the uh, Diet of Worms, was, it began, began in January 1522. Uh, so it was either rumored to be murdered by Pope Adrian VI or by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Right? But during his time in Wartburg, in Wartburg Luther uh, went by the name of Junker. Jorg. Junker just means knight. Jorg is George. 
right? So he was Knight George, and he grew a beard. And there he is, right? It's kind of a nice reformed-looking beard, even though Luther would not consider himself reformed. He was Luther. He was actually, Luther always considered himself Catholic, even until the point where he was excommunicated. And then after excommunication, he still considered himself Catholic, right? He was just a biblical Catholic, in his words, right? And he spent that time at Bortberg from May of 1521 to March of 1522, right? During this time, right, he writes his, uh, begins his translations of the Old and New Testament. He also writes two treatises, or two books. One is called On Confession, Whether the Pope Has the Power to Require It. And by confession, I mean, do you have to go to the church and confess? And his argument is no, because we are saints, all of us, as we discussed in uh, the sermon that Zach gave on Sunday, but also we are all of a priestly class. Therefore, we have a great high priest who intercedes for us, and we don't need to go and confess to another human all of our sins and then be told, you know, give 16 Hail Marys, 27 Our Fathers, and 37 push-ups, right? So he says, no, the Pope does not have the power to require it. And then he gave one, he wrote another one called The Judgment of Martin Luther on Monastic Vows. So remember, Luther was an Augustinian monk of the Black Cloister, right? So uh, he said, you know, monks, you have the power to reject your monastic vows. You have the power and the right to walk away from those. God is not going to hate you at all. Your salvation will not be lost if you walk away from your monastic vows. And he goes, in fact, I encourage you to do so, and I encourage nuns to do so, and I encourage you all to get married. Right? So he's writing two huge uh, treatises, two books on confession, and the, the, or the Catholic view of confession, and then the right to walk away from your monastic vows. Right? All the while, at Wittenberg, his colleagues are carrying on the Reformation. And in his absence, uh, they begin to implement some of Luther's teachings. Number one, monks and nuns around Wittenberg leave their communities and marry each other. And it's uh, in 1525 where Luther marries Katerina von Bora. Here she is. Uh, so Katerina was of a lesser nobility of Saxony, so she was royalty. She had probably been like, a duchess or even or a marquess below that. So she wasn't very high up, but she was still royalty. She's nobility. Uh, she went into the monastic or the, uh, the nunnery, mainly because she was one of the younger daughters of her father, and that's usually what happened. If, the, you know, if you were a younger son or a younger daughter, you went into the vows, right? Uh, she and a group of her fellow nuns got tired of it after having read... Luther's treatise on giving up monastic vows. And they escaped by being packed into fish barrels and it moved into Wittenberg Castle where Luther was, and, or Luther's colleagues were, right? So uh, she escaped her nunnery by being packed into a fish barrel and then unpacked when she got back to the castle. Uh, Luther called her Katie my rib. They married in 1525. The first time Katerina von Bora met Martin Luther, 
she thought he was a pompous jerk, right? And he thought she was a fiery redhead because she was a fiery redhead, right? She was opinionated, which, you know, women at this time were not really allowed to, unless they were the queen, not really allowed to express their opinions in ways that she did. But she said, you know what? I don't care. I'm Katerina von Bora, and that's the way things are going to be. And so Philip Melanchthon and a couple other friends got them together and said, you know, you, you guys actually kind of mesh really well. And they're like, nope. Right? So then the second time, got them together and said, you guys really mesh really well. And they're like, fine, we'll get married. Right? So, so they married, right? Luther said of his marriage, he was suddenly, while I was occupied with far different thoughts, the Lord has plunged me into marriage, right? So I was like, all right. So uh, Katerina was 26 at the time of their marriage. Martin was 41 at the time of their marriage. They had six children, four of whom lived to adulthood. One died a month after her birth. The other one, uh, Magdalena, was 13 when she passed, and they think she had the plague. Uh, so uh, after Magdalena's birth, Luther was unconsolable. And if you read some of his writings directly after her birth, and actually for the rest of his life, he has a very melancholy attitude uh, towards a lot of things. Uh, so monks and nuns around Wittenberg and the, and the communities uh, leave their communities. They begin to, to marry each other. Luther's colleagues at Wittenberg abolish mass for the dead, and that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a mass said for the dead. Uh, basically, it's just a another way to try to get them into heaven, okay? Uh, church services are now conducted in German as opposed to Latin, right? Days of fasting and abstinence are abolished, right? So you can eat meat on Fridays if you wish. Uh, and then the other days of fasting, uh, there's a lot in the Catholic uh, litur liturgical calendar for days of fasting, but all those were removed. Uh, and then Philip Melanchthon, uh, who becomes Luther's right-hand man, begins to offer communion in both kinds, meaning you get the bread and the wine, or the host and the wine. Right? Here's a picture of Philip. Right. We'll run into him later. And then in the midst of all this, Andreas von Karlstadt, who we ran into when we looked at the Leipzig debate, begins to go into churches and demolish icons and demolish any type of statue Luther goes, hey, hang up, whoa, 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 we're, we're moving a little fast, right? I'm going to preach moderation on that, so don't, don't go around and be an iconoclast. An iconoclast is somebody who destroys icons, right? Okay? The big thing that brings Luther back is something called the Zikau or the Zwickau Prophets, the Zwickau Prophets, Z-W-I-C-K-A-U, Z-W-I-C-K-A-U, happens in February of 1522. Three men from the local town of Zwickau appear at Wittenberg claiming to be prophets of God. Now, the Zwickau Prophets are radical reformers. They've taken some of their Anabaptist teachings, and they've gone well beyond what the Anabaptists are teaching, right? So what they claim is that they don't need scripture. God speaks directly to them, right? 
Now, for Luther, that's a huge problem because his main aspect of the Reformation is we have to get back to Scripture. We have to get back to what the New Testament and what the Old Testament is telling us. Right? So if you come and tell me that you don't need the authority of Scripture, there is a problem. Right? At that point, you're just making stuff up. Right? Melanchthon, good old Phil, he's not really sure how to handle these men. He wants to debate them, and he's writing letters back and forth to Luther. And Luther's like, you can't debate with fools, all right? Because they're just going to mock you to your face, right? So what Luther does is he finally writes to Frederick the Wise, right? And he lets them know, hey, I have to return to Wittenberg. He goes, I don't care if I get caught in the middle. He's like, some, somewhere between Wartburg and Wittenberg and get arrested. He's like, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I don't need your safety because I know God's safety will, God's protection will save me on that road. And what he says is he goes, he, he writes in, in this letter called uh, the letter to Frederick the Wise on the 7th of March, 1522. He goes, during my absence, Satan has entered my sheepfold and committed ravages which I cannot repair by writing, but only by my personal presence and my living word. So he goes, heading back to Wittenberg, right? Here we go. Upon his return, Luther, Luther preaches a series of sermons, eight sermons to be exact. They're called Incovocate Sermons, you know, because he showed up on Incovocate Sunday. We don't even worry about that. It's just part of the old church calendar, right? Incovocate just means to call upon, to invoke, right? So it starts on Incovocate Sunday, goes for two months. Right? And by sheer weight of his pastoral authority, he's able to banish the Zikau prophets from Wittenberg. They go on to start uh, causing problems uh, in Strasbourg, as we saw last week, and uh, in other areas. Right? Uh, they are eventually, long story short with them, they are eventually crushed in uh, some of the rebellions that happened between uh, 1530 and 1535. Uh, so they're, they're eradicated. Right? But the Reformation in the German states begins to become highly complicated. So we're going from more of that mix of church and state, and we're going to get really deep into church and state. Because from here on out, it's more of a political movement. Because now we're going to get princes and we're going to get electorates who begin to say, I'm 100% Protestant and my people are going to be and then we get the others that are like, I'm sticking with the old Catholic faith, right? And they're going to be in constant warfare with each other, and I literally mean warfare with each other, all right? So here's some of the socio-political effects of that. But before we begin, any, uh, any questions on Wittenberg and what's going on at this time? Remember that at this time, we've got the Holy Roman Empire and France. And they're going through a lot of problems with each other. Charles V does not like Francis I of France and vice versa. They use the Pope for their advantages. Charles V doesn't even like the Pope. Francis I is all like, yay, I want, to be, I want the Pope on my side, but I want him to keep him out of French politics. Right? So they basically use the Pope as a puppet. But while Charles V is determined to stamp out the Lutheran heresy in his German states, 
He really can't. He can't afford to give the type of attention that those heretics deserve. Mainly because he's always at war with Francis I, or then he has to deal with the Ottoman Turks later on on his, west, his eastern border. So we have Francis I on his west side, the Ottoman Turks invading Vienna, Austria, on his east side. Right? So he's constantly needing to send troops either west or east. Right? And so who he calls on? He calls on the Germans. Right? And he goes, all right, I don't care if you're Protestant or Catholic. Can we just get along enough so that we can go send you somewhere to fight? Uh, from 1521 to 1525, Chuck V and Francis I are at war. Uh, and then in 1525, at the Battle of Pavia, Francis I is captured by Charles V's troops. Francis I is signed, forced to sign a humiliating peace treaty. He's restored to his throne, uh, but he's basically removed politically for the next 10 years. All right? Okay? We don't, that's a whole other story. Right. Uh, let's just suffice us to say that the Germans have always had it out for the French, and the French have always had it out for the Germans, and uh, so they are always trying to humiliate each other. Basically, Francis I had to tell Charles V that he was the best king in the world, and that here are several thousand, tens of thousands of ducats, gold coins, to put in your coffers. So basically, gives him like a billion dollars in today's money. Right. So the reparations are pretty huge. In 1527, Spanish and German troops invade Italy under Charles V. They sack Rome. Right? The Lutherans see this as God's punishment right, and God's good judgment. And then in 1528, troops under English financial backing, uh, led by Henry VIII, uh, their financial backing invade, or not invade, but come to the rescue uh, they, the French troops really would have decimated the Spanish, combined Spanish-German troops, but a, uh, some sort of plague epidemic, it wasn't bubonic plague, but it was some sort of like dysentery plague or something like that, breaks out and it weakens the troops. Uh, the French are finally like, uh, or, yeah, the French are finally like, you know what, I don't, I don't care, we're going home. The Germans are like, oh, the dang Turks are coming again, we gotta go fight them now, so everybody leaves. Okay. Uh, they sign a peace treaty uh, now with the Pope, who's now Clement VII. Right? We're not really going to worry about who's Pope at what time. I'll just tell you who it is. Right? Adrian, the, Adrian dies in 1526. Clement VII is now Pope. Right? They all sign a peace treaty with Francis and the Pope. Right? Charles, needless to say, has his hands full. He's got too many things pulling on him in too many directions. Right? Most of it is Francis I and the Ottoman Turks. While all that's going on, he has to fight something called the Knights' Rebellion or the Knights' Revolt. And as that says, it's a bunch of knights that are revolting. Okay? Right? While all that's going on, he's fighting the French, he's fighting the Turks, he's fighting the Pope in Italy. Now he has to fight people inside of Germany itself or the German states itself. Right? So in 1522... 1523, rebellion breaks out among the German knights under the leadership of Franz von Sickingen. And I think, wait, there's Franz. Right? Uh, good Prussian-sounding name, von Sickingen. Right? Basically what happens is this. 
Throughout the preceding 200 years, the knightly class in Germany begins to see its fortunes decline. And by fortunes, I don't necessarily mean money, though that's definitely part of it, but they see their, their status, their wealth, and their lands begin to decline. Right? They're, they're taken from them. Right? They're beginning to be seen as a lesser class of people. Right? It's leaving many of them penniless, many of them landless, many of them, in, because of the age of chivalry, honorless, and that's a big thing to worry about when you're a knight. You're all about honor. Right? And they blamed Rome for their misfortunes. Why that is, historians are still debating. My uh, opinion, uh, having read the uh, majority of the, of the literature on it, is basically it's just a combination of a whole lot of stuff. Then they got tired of being told what to do by Rome. Why? Because Rome's in Italy and they're in Germany. And they're tired of having a foreign power tell them what to do. Right? Which makes sense. Right? They saw Luther as their national hero and their champion. And so, while some were convinced of Ruth, Luther's teachings, not all of them were, but some were convinced, uh, one of them being von Sickigen, uh, but they saw physical force as the best way to advance the Reformation. Luther did not condone it. Luther's like, we're not going to bring bloodshed into all this to advance the gospel. He's like, we've seen that before in the Crusades. Guess what? Doesn't work. Right? We have to convince the hearts and the minds of the people. Right? But being knights, they are trained in one thing and one thing only. And so they said, let's just eradicate the Catholics. And Luther was like, nope. Right? So the rebels attacked the imperial city of Treyer in May of 1523 before being defeated by a combined force of Catholic and Protestant princes. That's important. Right? German knights attack a German city, right, in 1523, and then are defeated by a combined force of Protestant and Catholic Germans, right? This is a civil war, right? So they're defeated, right? Von Sickigen dies of his wounds. He's wounded really bad in battle and dies three days later, probably of a, a gangrene or something like that. Uh, and most knights are allowed to go home, but they're disposed of any of the remaining lands. So they go home to no home at all. Right? So they were worried about being landless, penniless, and honorless, and they're removed of all three of those things and then told, shut up and go home. Right? You would be a little bitter after that, and a lot of them are. Right? So what happens is that the knights revolt for all intents and purposes, ends the knightly class in Germany. There's now no knights. Also, with this, in this revolt, uh, Germany begins to see the, the first use of cannons and small firearms against mounted cavalry, because that's what knights are, mounted cavalry. Right? So you're beginning to see a technological movement in warfare as well. So you see... Knights wearing armor, but not being able to stand up to a 56 caliber musket ball. That doesn't work out too well, right? Or knights in armor not being able to stand up to, uh, they had these small cannons that looked like long shotguns, 
and you would put large arrows in it, right? Well, one of those coming at you at still subsonic speeds, right, it's going to go right through you, right? I don't care how much armor you have on you, it's going to go through you, right? So they see a loss of their status because knights, you know, everybody has this romantic view of knights, the Germans especially, comes back to haunt them during the Second World War, right? But knights have lost their prestige. They're no longer the knights of the realm. They're no longer those who are there to defend the purposes of their princes or, the, or German lands or their Germanic people as a whole. Right? So they, they lose, they lose their, their class ship, if you will. They're, they lose their ability to be a major fighting force and landowners. Right? But the Knights' Revolt also gives precedence to something that we call the Peasants' Revolt, and that's coming up shortly. Right? The Knights' Revolt by Luther was seen as a great tragedy, mainly because of the loss of life. That's never a pleasant thing to have to deal with. But for Luther... His, the thing that was the biggest tragedy was like, if you guys had just submitted to the authorities of the electors and princes, you, you, you wouldn't be in this situation. All right, so Luther's like, listen to what the authorities are telling you. Listen to what the magistrates are telling you. Because remember, Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, are magisterial reformers. They work within the system. They work within the political system to get their reformation goals. All right, does that make sense? Right? Any questions on the Knights Revolt? Okay. The Knights Revolt has a direct effect and leads directly into the Peasants Revolt. So if the Knights Revolt, Knights were involved in the Knights Revolt, who's uh, part of the Peasants Revolt? Peasants. Right? This is probably the most tragic of the revolts, and it lasts for two years, 1524 to 1525. Uh, as we said, it's a direct result of the Knights' Revolt and the continuing worsening of the conditions of the German peasantry. Uh, it was not the first Presence Revolt, this one that we're about to discuss. There was one in 1476, 1491, 1498, 1503, and 1514. So within a 30-year span, there are one, two, three, four, five, six Peasants' Revolts. Okay? But this time it was the worst. Why are they revolting? Why, do, why are peasants revolting? Because <laughs> right? Right? they're peasants. Right? Right? So that's why. Because they're peasants. Right? Which means they're where on the social economic scale? Way down here. Which means, hey, Mav, how much money? Zero. Right? How much land? None. Right? So they... They revolt for economic reasons, but what they do is they take Luther's religious teachings and apply it to economics. That's something, that's a major leap that Luther is not prepared to do, right? He's like, I'm more worried about your soul than I am about whether or not you're making money, right? But at the same time, in all of the context of European and actually world history, what are we seeing? We're seeing a shift in economics. We're seeing a shift from uh, feudal lands, which is the king has his vassals, and the vassals then spread out the land to serfs who work the ground and get absolutely no glory except for a really bad life and a really hard, horrible death, right? 
to proto-capitalism. Mercantilism is actually the term at this time. It's the beginning of mercantilism. Right? Mercantilism means you are a merchant and you sell your goods. The money that you make, guess what? You get to keep. And you get to invest that more into your business. Right? It's, uh, mercantilism is what the English colonies is founded on. Right? The ability to make your own money and make your own destiny. Right? So the, basically the peasants see this change and they're like, hey, we, went on, we want in on a piece of that. But at the same time, we want to be Germans, and we don't want to be told by Rome how to worship God. So I'm going to take Luther's writings, I'm going to take my economic desires, and I'm going to mix them all together, and I'm going to say, Luther says that it's okay for us to revolt. And Luther would be like, no. I say you need to submit to the local magistrates. Right? The peasant leaders, many of whom are now disposed knights, right, because... Less than a year before, they lost the Knights' Revolt, and now they're all landless and penniless and are basically peasants, right, and honorless. Right? Believe that the teachings of the Reformers supported their economic demands, right, mainly because the Catholic Church owns a ton of land at this time. Right? And the rebels author what they called their 12 Articles, which outlines their religious and economic demands. Uh, basically, they base their arguments on the authority of Scripture, and declared that if any of their arguments could be shown contrary to Scripture, it would then be withdrawn. The 12 articles are just basically like, hey, you know, we deserve to have money. We deserve to have land. We deserve to have a house. We deserve to have, right? And then they base it all with uh, Scripture, right? If you ever want to do a class on the 12 articles, you are a nerd, okay? That is something I have personally never studied before. It would sure be fun but uh, you'd really be wanting to dive deep into the peasants' revolt, right? Okay? Luther refuses to extend his teachings to the realms of politics in terms of, in terms of rebellion, and he could not, for the life of him, see any connection between his doctrines and rebellion. But what the Luther did see was that the peasants are sorely oppressed, oppressed by their German princes and electors and oppressed by Rome in their religion. And in that, he demanded from the German princes a just resolution to this revolt. That's the key word, a just resolution. However, the peasants aren't worried about talking. They want to fight it out. Right? And so they take up arms. Now, as soon as they take up arms, Luther, being someone who wants to work within the magistrate, is forced to side with the princes. But even in that, he's like, you know, be magnanimous, fellas, right? These are your people. If you decide to show that you're going to crush them with absolutely no remorse, you're going to cause other problems. Well, guess what they decide to do? Crush them with no remorse. And so they do. The rebellion becomes super bloody, right? And when Luther finally calls them to knock it off, more than 100,000 peasants are dead. That's a lot of people within a little over a, a year and a half, almost two years. Right? Uh, the Peasants' Rebellion was seen by the peasants as a huge mark against Protestantism and Lutheran, Luther's teachings. Because Luther does not side with them, 
many of them become either Anabaptists or they return to Catholicism, right? The horrible part is when they return, when they move to Anabaptism, within the next five to ten years, they're being crushed like we discussed last week. So a lot of them died during that as martyrs, all right? And then those that returned to Catholicism moved further down south in Germany towards uh, what is now the southern border of Germany, the northern border of Austria, right? There's a, a migration like we saw in the Swiss cantons. There's a migration of Lutherans more to the front or the north and Catholics to the south, right? So if you go to Bavaria today, right, it's mainly a Catholic state, okay? Right. So here are the consequences then for the Reformation in Germany. Catholic princes blamed Luther and Lutheranism for the rebellions. They increased their measure against the spread of this heresy in their territories, meaning persecution steps up. More people die. Vast numbers of peasants, as we've discussed, convinced that Luther has betrayed them, become Anabaptists. We know how that ends for them. And, they ret and some return to Catholicism. It also has an academic consequence. Remember the humanists? Well, they're still around. Right? They'll be around until the age of the Enlightenment, and then they just basically turn into, uh, they go to French salons and contemplate their belly buttons in a lot of ways. Right? But the humanists, repugnant of controversy and dissent, that's the funny thing about humanists. At this time, they, they weren't really wanting to take sides. They're like, oh, we see the good parts of Luther, and we see the great parts of Catholicism, but we're not going to pick sides. The peasant revolt makes them pick sides, and they pick with the Catholics. Right? Erasmus of Rotterdam writes a scathing book against Luther. Mainly, he can't really find anything at fault with his theology. Right? He's like, oh, well, I'm the one that did the Greek New Testament that you did all of your translation out of. I can't find anything wrong with your, your biblical theology, so I'm going to go into your systematic theology. Luther never really had a systematic theology, but what we would consider systematics. Erasmus goes after the idea of predestination. And Erasmus writes a book called uh, On Free Will in 1524, in which he says that free will is given to us by God and that we ultimately have to decide if we accept him or not. Right? Luther, not to be outdone, says, Erasmus, you're full of garbage. And he goes, and you know nothing about the New Testament or the Old Testament, right? Which is not true because Erasmus was a priest and he was one who always went back to his sources, right? He responds to Erasmus by writing on the bondage of the will. Guess where Luther stands on free will and predestination? Luther says, your, because of the fall, your will is incapable of choosing good, right, with a capital G. Your will is incapable of choosing good. Therefore, you, as a fallen sinner, are incapable of choosing God. Erasmus would say, well, there's still a little bit of good in us. That's Pelagius, and Augustine ripped him to shreds in the 5th century, right? Luther would say, based off Scripture and Augustine, you can't. Therefore, you need somebody, you need God, 
to come down and rescue you. You have to have the Holy Spirit come and lead you towards good. Does that make sense? I have a copy of The Bondage of the Will. If you want to read it, it's fantastic. Right? Uh, so, uh, but that's, that's the consequences for the Reformation in Germany. From then on, it literally becomes warfare. Right? We'll discuss next week or the week. In two weeks, we won't be here because that'll be the week before I preach. So we won't have uh, institutes. But when we come back from that, we'll get into the Thirty Years' War where the Catholics and the Protestants of Germany are literally in war for 30 years, right? That's going to have huge consequences because that's going to push everything north and south some more. All the north becomes Lutheran. All the south becomes uh, Catholic. And then from there, the northern Lutherans spread into the Scandinavian countries. So Denmark, uh, Sweden, Norway, the kingdom of Sweden, Norway. And uh, yeah, those are the at the time, those are the three. Finland is not considered a Scandinavian country at this point. Right? Okay? So you actually get to see how the, prod, how the uh, uh, Reformation spreads into the northern countries and into the lower countries like Holland and Belgium. Right? Questions on the Peasants' Revolt? Nothing? Okay. All right, let's look at some more politics, and then we'll get into the English ref. Right? Let's just look at the diets. There are a bunch of diets that are going to have a bunch of, of uh, consequences. Uh, 1523, we have the Diet of Nuremberg. Right? It's the same Nuremberg, the Nuremberg Trials of World War II. Right? Out of political necessity, Charles V, once again fighting Francis I and the Pope, adopts a policy of tolerance towards the Lutherans. Why? Because he needs the people to fight. He needs the manpower. Right? If you're fighting against Francis and the Pope, and you're like, oh, well, we don't want any Protestants, the Protestants will be like, sounds good to us. We're going to side with Francis I and the Pope, or we're going to fight you in between, right? So he's like, come on, Germany. Let's be united, Germany, and let's go, right? 1526, you then have the first Diet of Spires, right? It was in Spire. Way to go, right? Once again, out of political necessity, withdrew the Edict of Worms. Remember, the Edict of Worms says, Luther, you're a heretic. Right? Spire, first Spire says, well, we're just kidding. Everybody come on in. Right? Right? Reminds me of that scene in Blazing Saddles where he goes, except for the Irish. And they're like, boo! And he goes, oh, I'm just kidding. Irish too. Right? It's the same concept. Right? Okay? I worked in Blazing Saddles into a church history lesson. That was one of the, that was one of the cleaner aspects of Blazing Saddles. Right? Right? But anyway, right? I'll probably get a text about that later. Right? Uh, so basically, basically what happens is a grand, the, the first edict of, uh, the first uh, deed of Spires just gives each German principality its ability to choose whether it wants to go Lutheran or, or Catholic. That's all it does. Basically, it kind of says the same thing as the Edict or the Diet of Nuremberg in 1523. Right? 1529, you have the second Diet of Spire. And this is the fun one. Basically, what they do is they say, hey, we take back what we said the first time about the Edict of Worms. We really don't like Luther. Right? And at this point, all the Protestant princes stand up and they protest. 
and it's at the second edict or second diet of Spire that Protestants are called Protestants because the non-Catholic princes protest. So as a good Protestant, as all of us are in this room, right, we do nothing but protest. Right? What were they protesting about? They were protesting about persecution, right? which is ironic because at the second Diet of Spire, the Catholics and the Protestants come together and be like, except for the Anabaptists. We'll persecute the crud out of the Anabaptists. And so they do, right? Okay, so there's a little bit of, sorry, Ben, there's a little bit of historical irony in all that. Right? Ben's of Mennonite stock, so, you know, it happens. He's reformed, yay, right? The last and the major one is the 1530 Diet of Augsburg, and that's in Augsburg. We've talked about Augsburg before, right? There was another Diet of Augsburg earlier. In this case, it was the first one where Luther has to go before Cardinal uh, Cajetan and recant, and he doesn't, and Cajetan is like, oh, I don't know what to do with you, so uh, I'm going to try to arrest you, and Luther then escapes that evening and goes back to Wittenberg, right? But this one is huge, right? Finally, after fighting everybody, Charles V finally returns to Germany, and uh, it's like, all right, now i got to deal with all this garbage that's going on within the German states. Right? He calls in this Diet, and like at Worms, he does not want to hear the Lutheran cause, right? Uh, but, or excuse me, while at, like at Worms, remember at Worms he says, hey, I don't want to hear what the Lutherans have to say. They're all heretics. But now as a political necessity, Charles V goes, maybe I should listen to what they're saying, just so that like, we can always have a united front in the German states, right? So what happens is that the German princes call on Luther to write up a dissertation and dispensation or uh, dispensations for the argument. What Luther does is have Philip Melanchthon go down to Augsburg from Wittenberg. So Melanchthon uh, takes Luther's, and, and Melanchthon helps co-author this. Uh, it's called the Augsburg Confession of 1530. In the middle of Augsburg Cathedral, he and several other Protestant uh, pastors basically defend Protestant teaching, Lutheran teaching. Right? I have stood on the spot where Melanchthon stood, and it's fantastic. Right? You walk into Augsburg Cathedral through those two huge doors that Kyle and I were standing in front of, and you go out to the left. The left side of that cathedral is the Romanesque version of that building. So they just took the old Romanesque style of architecture, so it looks like Rome, Romanesque, right? And then they expanded it to the west, and that is all Gothic. So you walk in, and it's got those huge flying, uh, it's got a huge vaulted ceiling, flying buttresses coming out from every which way, right? Tons of stained glass, but when you go to the left, it's all dark. That's the Romanesque aspect of it. 
around to the right of that Romanesque area is a platform that's uh, a little bit bigger than this room. Right? And on top of that platform, there's a cathedra. That's where cathedrals get their name from. It's the, the throne of the bishop. And then these basically stadium seats on the sides. The stadium seats on the sides are for important people. The cathedra, in this case, was for Charles V. Right, so he would sit here and listen to arguments. The princes and electors of the realm, who are also princes, sat here. And they would debate back and forth. Right? When you're debating something, you always face the emperor. Right? And you always stand in the middle so that, A, you are a sword length apart from these people. <laughs> right? It's the same thing in, in parliament today, in English parliament today you'll see these red lines in the carpet, right? You cannot go past the red line because if you do, it's a sword length apart. That way you cannot fight each other literally in parliament, right? But you stand here and you address the emperor and you debate your points in front of the emperor, right? So uh, kind, of a, kind of a neat moving aspect of history it's always neat to be able to actually stand where something huge happened, right? Whether you go to the Capitol and set where Abraham Lincoln sat when he was a junior congressman or whatever, you know, it's kind of that same feeling. You're like, oh, you know. When it's presented, Charles V gets mad again, demands their recantation, right? Uh, but they said no. I mean, that was literally it. They're like, nope. Right? But they had too much, uh, Melanchthon had too many princes on his side this time to have Charles V actually do something about it. Because the last thing he wanted to do was come home from war to fight another war. Right? So he finally says, fine. All right? Uh, but then Charles V changes his mind because he's the emperor and he can do whatever he wants. Right? This is all within like a matter of a couple weeks. Right? Uh, and says, nope, I'm going to stamp out the Reformation. I'm going to crush the Lutherans. And Lutheran fi Luther himself finally agrees that now is the time to create a united military front for self-defense. He creates the League of Schmalkald. Don't worry about the name of it. Right? Schmalkald uh, has a big uh, part in the Thirty Years' War. Right, so the League of Schmalkald is basically, it was at Schmalkald where they came up with it. Schmalkald uh, is basically all the Lutheran princes and anything that's, anybody who's Protestant. Right, so that's, that's their united battlefront. Right, but as in this point, military action has not surfaced right, uh, in Germany, but Charles V has given more direction uh, and he has to go fight France and tur the Turks again. Right? We get it's kind of a broken record with Chuck. Right? It's either the French or the Turks, or the Turks or the French, or the French, the Pope, and the Turks. Right? So he's constantly fighting between the French and the Turks. Right? So uh, out of necessity in 1532, he signs the Peace of Nuremberg because, once again, he's fighting the French and the Turks, and guess what he needs? Manpower. He needs bodies, right? So thus ends the uh, Diet of Augs the second Diet of Augsburg, 
and from basically, except for the Thirty Years' War, that's Protestant, or that's the Reformation in Germany, right? When we get finally into the theology of all that, you'll see how some of that fits more into it, but, but yeah, so questions? Yes, ma'am. Calvin does not respond to Aramis, uh, as this particular book was directed specifically at Luther. It's just Luther. Uh, Calvin, at this point, is uh, not his uh, his first edition of the uh, Institutes happens in 1536, so he hasn't really begun to write any of this yet. Calvin, Calvin is about 20 years younger. No. Nope. Uh, he, he reads it. Uh, Calvin is more influenced by Scripture and Augustine, just like... So there, there'd be a lot of... Yeah, they, they draw similar conclusions. They're not all, always exactly the same on their understanding of predestination. But for Luther, or for Calvin... Predestination takes up like 12 pages in his institutes. His, his biggest thing, being a pastor, is more about the prayer life. And his, uh, as I talked about last week, his, uh, his main chapter in the institutes is on prayer, which precedes uh, his one on, on predestination. At the end of predestination, Calvin's really like, like Paul says, I don't know, it's a mystery. Right, so he doesn't really conclude anything. Luther, in On the Bondage of the Will, is using Scripture in Augustine to make a philosophical argument because that's what Erasmus does. He makes a philosophical argument. Right? Like, no, you, you have free will. And Luther's like, if you have free will, man, you are you're one dirty person. I mean, you're, you're sinful. You're, you're dirty. You're, your righteousness is like bloody rags. Right? So he's, he's more interested in just refuting the philosophy of Erasmus or Erasmus. Good question. All righty. Buckle up, because here comes the English Reformation. All right? So while all this is going on in Germany, a very, very peculiar Reformation is taking place in England, and as we'll look at next week, in Scotland as well, because they overlap. All right? The English Reformation begins with Henry VIII, who lived from 1491 to 1547. So let's set the stage England and Spain are allies, so England's an ally of Charles V, who's Charles I of Spain. Scotland and France are allies. All right, okay. Guess who does not like the French? The Spanish. Guess who does not like the Spanish? The French. Charles V, who's actually Charles I of Spain, doesn't like either of them, right? So, well, he actually likes Spain, but he doesn't like the French, doesn't like the Scots, Okay. So all of that, England and Spain being allies, Scotland and France being allies, all have consequences on the continent, right? Where France and Charles I are always go, or Charles V are always going at it, as we've already discussed, right? So Charles V is Charles I of France, 
right? Charles V is Holy Roman Empire. That's his title, Charles I of Spain. Right? So Charles V is Charles I. Everybody confused? Good. We're just going to call him Charles V. All right? Just know that he's Spanish and he's the Holy Roman Emperor. All right? Okay? On this 22nd of August of 1485, Henry Tudor defeats Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Hill. My horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse, that Richard III, whom William, William Shakespeare just basically demonizes. All right? Henry Tudor is fighting under the flag or the flower of the York. Right? Richard III is a Lancaster, so you have a white rose versus the red rose, and we call this the War of the Roses. Right? So Henry Tudor defeats Richard III on the field of battle. He did not actually kill him, but Richard III is the last English king to die on the field of battle. Right? He's not the last English king to lead troops into battle. Okay? Henry the Tudor is crowned Henry VII, thus rising the Tudor dynasty. Right? So here's Henry VIII. We have a picture of Henry VII, don't we? Right? There he is. Honestly, it kind of looks a lot like Richard III. If you put like two pictures of them together, it's like, really? It's the same dude, right? But whatever, okay? Henry VII, in order to tie his strength with Spain, marries his son Arthur, who was Prince of Wales, at the age of 15 to one Catherine of Aragon. There's Arthur. There's Catherine. Catherine is a daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella the very same Ferdinand and Isabella. Right? However, Arthur dies four months later. All right? It's probably some sort of uh, tuberculosis or something like that. Uh, his parents were devastated, just absolutely devastated. Right? So now we've got this young princess who is basically, or was supposed to be the queen consort of England, right? is now in limbo. So Spain goes, hey, why don't you marry Catherine off to Henry? Right, Catherine's 15, Henry's 10. Right, okay. Well, uh, you have to obtain permission for the Pope to do that because in canon law it says that a man cannot marry his brother's widow. So Spain is basically saying, hey, why don't we break canon law so that we can continue our alliance? Right. But they do obtain permission right, from the Pope himself. And seven years later, when Henry becomes Henry VIII, they marry in 1509. He's almost 18. Right? So as soon as he becomes king upon his father's death, they marry. Right? Let's just say it was not a happy marriage right, and comes with a ton of baggage. Right? The problem is, is, as we've said about canon law, there is doubt whether or not the Pope can take canon law and break it to make a legitimate marriage. That's going to haunt this entire situation until Henry and Catherine die. Actually, until Elizabeth dies. Right? Almost a century later. Okay? So, the problem is, is the legality of the marriage was constantly and always in doubt. So what happens is there are several solutions that are put forth in this. Right? Henry proposes that his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, 
become king or became, be made legitimate. Henry Fitzroy says whose son he is. Fitz, son of Roy the king. If your name was Fitzroy, you know whose kid you belong to. So Henry Fitzroy, Henry's son of the king. Okay? Right? So he's a uh, illegitimate child. Right? All the books always use the B word, and I can't use the B word tonight. Right? So we'll call it, right? But there is, you're, you're, there's technically nothing wrong with that until we call it, start calling them people that word for other reasons. Right? It was actually a legal word at the time. Right? Right? But they can't do that because, once again, that would require papal action and then it would alienate Spain because it would get rid of Catherine. Can't do that. Right? No. Right? It's then suggested that Catherine uh, marry, or excuse me, that Henry Fitzroy marry Catherine's daughter, uh, Catherine and Henry's daughter Mary. Okay? They are half siblings. Right? Henry Fitzroy is Henry VIII's illegitimate son. Henry and Catherine of Aragon have a legitimate, at this point, daughter named Mary Tudor. Right? They are half-siblings. What do we call it when siblings of any type do anything together like that? That's incest, gross. Right? That's incest. And the person that uh, suggested that was thrown in prison. Right? Because they're like, really? Really? You're done. Go. Right? You're under arrest. Okay? Okay? Henry then proposes that his marriage be annulled. This is before he meets Anne of Boleyn. Or Anne Boleyn, I should say. Not of Boleyn. Anne Boleyn. He hasn't met Anne at this point. Okay? Right? So Henry goes back to canon law and says, the marriage between himself and Catherine was not licit, therefore it's not a real marriage. Because the Pope does not have the power. Oh, listen, listen to this. The king is now saying that the Pope does not have power to determine who he can marry. It's big, ginormous. The Pope, Clement VII, we've already talked about him, would not allow the marriage, uh, would not annul the marriage, excuse me, because he was afraid of Charles V. Right? Catherine of Aragon is Charles V's aunt. Does this all, like, okay, the politics of Europe are amazing, right? And they are to this day, right? World War I is a giant family feud, right? What, what you're seeing in Europe now, still all because Victoria had a bazillion grandkids, right? So, what you've got is... Two powerful allies in England and Spain, Catherine, the, uh, Catherine of Aragon, Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter, is aunt to Charles V. Charles V is the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor is constantly at war with France and the Turks and the Pope. The Pope is deathly afraid of Charles V. Therefore, he won't annul it because he's afraid that Catherine's going to be like, uh, I'm going to call on my nephew and he's going to kick the crud out of you. Right? Okay? Nope. Nope. It's all politics. Right? So finally, Henry's religious advisor, T 
Thomas Cramner, whose name we will run into again. Cramner is C-R-A-N-M-E-R, right? Says, hey, let's ask the leading universities in Europe to get involved and settle this matter. And they all come back. That's, that's uh, uh, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Paris, and another one. I can't remember off the top of my head. Doesn't matter, right? But all of them come together. They're all Catholic universities at this point. They all come together and be like, uh, his marriage to Catherine, Henry's marriage to Catherine is against canon law, right? It's illegitimate. It should not have happened in the first place, right? So then what happens is moving for, from that point on, right, Henry is looking for a way to end his marriage. And it's during all this time that he eyes Anne Boleyn, who sister Mary Henry was having an affair with. So Mary Boleyn was in an affair with the king, right? He gets tired of Mary and goes, I like you, but your sister's a lot better looking, right? I think your sister's pretty, right? One of those types of things, right? So he starts having an affair with Anne Boleyn. He gets rid of Mary, kicks her, you know, she still remains a lady in waiting and a courtier, but then he goes off to Anne, right? And then through all of that, Henry begins enacting political policies to further lead, or that will eventually lead to the break with Rome. And those policies are, he reenacts an ancient English law forbidding any type of appeal to Rome. Any type, political or religious. That ancient law was written in about the 7th century. And basically what it says is, what does Rome have to do with England? All right, why? Where, where is London? It's in England. England is a... Island, the British Isles, right? You're 800, 1,000 miles away from Rome. Who cares? Who cares what Rome thinks about England? What, who cares what London thinks about Rome, right? But what you're also seeing is, remember we talked about at the very beginning on that first lecture, the rise of the nation states and the breaking away of papal authority across all of the nations. And what you're seeing is Henry through his marriage and his desire to get out of his marriage, is basically saying, I will determine. Me, Henry the King, will determine what is best for England. Not you, Clement VII. Not you, Rome. I will determine what's best. I will determine what's best politically. I will determine what's best economically. I will determine what is best religiously. Alrighty? Okay? So they reenact this ancient law they threaten to retain any type of monetary funds that always annually go to Rome, and they eventually do. Clement reacts by saying, oh, hey, let's make Thomas Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury. So he does. Henry goes, that's great. Way to go for the promotion, Thomas. By the way, Clement, I'm still going to do what I want to do. Okay? Right. And then in the midst of all of that, Henry's arguing against Luther. Henry's still a good Catholic. He's still a devout Catholic. He doesn't like the Lutheran heresy. Right, so he writes a treatise against Luther, to which the Pope then calls him the defender of the faith. And when you watch opening of Parliament nowadays, they still call the monarch in England, or Great Britain now, the defender of the faith. Now it's defender of the faiths because it's a pluralistic society. But that title, Defender of the Faith, 
goes all the way back to Henry VIII. Because he wrote a treatise against Luther. Right? It's fascinating, isn't it? Man, I wish I, we're going to do a 12-week, maybe we're going to do a 52-week course just solely on the English Reformation. It would be amazing, okay? Right? So Henry, Henry isn't after the reform like Luther's. He really isn't. He's after a restoration of the rights of the crown against undue, unwarranted papal innervation in English civil and political and religious matters. Let me say that again. He's not interested in a religious reformation. He wants the rights of the king of England to be the rights of the king of England. He wants to be king because he is king. Let him be king. And it's from there that he pushes forward with more policies. It's Thomas Cramner. Archbishop of Canterbury who takes the opportunity to go, oh, well, we've got a political storm going. Let's do a religious one as well, right? Because Thomas Cramner's reading Wycliffe and uh, Luther, and he's going, oh, this is great. Yes, this is what I've been praying for for years, right? So it's this man, not Henry VIII. Henry VIII just allows the political divide to happen. It's this man who's responsible for the English Reformation, right? Okay? But the final break doesn't come until 1534. In 1534, under, Parliament, under Henry's lead, Parliament passes laws to revoke all payments to Rome. They're not going to tithe anything to Rome for the rest of English history, British history. Right? It's not Britain until 1707, the Unification Act, under Queen Anne. Parliament... Let me say that again. Parliament declares Henry's marriage to Catherine not a true marriage and Mary not the rightful heir to the throne. Parliament makes Mary illegitimate as a child. Right? So Parliament declares the marriage un, uh, null and void. Not, not Rome. Parliament also names the king the supreme head of the Church of England. And anyone who opposes to that last point about being the true supreme head of the king of England is declared either a schismatic or a heretic and was guilty of treason. The most famous of that persons is Sir Thomas More. There he is. He was Chancellor of England, best friend of the king. And you can't go against the king. So he's arrested for treason. He refuses to swear loyalty to the king as head of the church and is found guilty of treason. And he was beheaded. His last words were, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Yeah. Right? Let's remember that in American politics. I die a good American and a good servant of America, but I am God's servant first. Let us remember that. In 1966, they had a movie called A Man for All Seasons, and it's about Sir Thomas More. It's a good one. I recommend you watch it. Let's talk about Henry's five other wives real quick. There's Catherine, and then he has five more. That's six. Anne Boleyn, boom, there she is. Produced no living male heirs. Male heirs, not errors, heirs. 
However, she does have one living daughter, Elizabeth, right? Anna's beheaded for treason. They do a movie about her, too. It's called Anne of a Thousand Days because she rules, she's queen for about a little over three years, and we do all the math, it's about a thousand days. Ta-da, right? Okay. Next one is Jane Seymour. She does, doesn't she? That is, that is a very lifelike painting of Jane Seymour, right? Right? No, there she is, right? Jane Seymour produces a living male heir. We call him Edward VI, but she dies of purple fever 12 days after his birth. So after giving birth, she got a bacterial infection, and what happened a lot to women after childbirth in those days, she dies. Right? Next one, Anna Cleves. Anne is German. Right? Here she is. Right? She's German. Their marriage only lasted six months. She could not put up with Henry's garbage. Right? She was like, no way, Jose. And he was like, I'm not really attracted to you. Right? By the way, this is the time where Henry's like huge. In his youth, Henry was a very good-looking man. He was trim, slim. He was a fighting man, and he loved to joust. And in a tournament, his leg gets injured. And so he kind of hobbles around for the rest of his life. Right? And he's not able to exercise and play. He was good at tennis, too. Uh, so he's not able to exercise. So what he does do, he indulges himself in food and women. Right? So at this time, he's huge. He's like 450 pounds, he's, you know, about 5 foot 10, so it's all like there, so he's about 5 foot 10 all the way around, right? <laughs> Anne was like, Anne was like, oh, and she was, and he was like, oh, she's German, oh, right? So they, they just kind of go like, no, right? They get divorced, right? He sets her up in this really posh castle, and lo- he loves her like a sister. In fact, he calls her Anne my sister for the rest of her life, right? She outlives everybody. She finally dies in like 1557, right? She's, she's one of two that die naturally. Well, three, because Catherine of Aragon also, right? Catherine Howard, no children. She's accused of adultery, which is the same thing as being accused of treason when you're the queen, right? She's beheaded in 1452. She was 19, right? Next one, Catherine Parr, last but not least, right? No children. Strong supporter of religious reforms. She outlives Henry, who dies in 14, 1547, and she dies in 1548. Yes, ma'am? No. No. In fact, there's questions about whether or not that marriage was consummated. So they, they did not like each other physically. saying I liked him or her for their personality. Right? But here are the religious reforms that were made under Henry. Right? Henry was a religious conservative. He was all about staying Catholic if he could. Right? He just didn't want the Pope messing with his stuff. Right? So not much done theologically or doctrinally. Okay? Except for the split from Rome. That's a, huge, that's a pretty big one. Right? So any laws passed dealing with religious matters during his reign were done out of political necessity. So the church in England, for all intents and purposes, remains Catholic in practice. But what Henry does is that he dissolves the monasteries and cloisters, and he practices iconoclasm. So he goes around to the chapels and breaks down the chapels and and destroys any icons and, and images, right? And he says, if you're in a monastery, get out. This land now belongs to me. 
It's Thomas Cramner, like we discussed, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He pushes for that, right? Cramner orders a Bible to be translated into English. It's called the Great English Bible. And he puts one in every church in England. And it's, since it's translated into English, right? Sermons are now done in English, right? So by the time of Henry's death in 1547, the environment is ripe for reformation, right? And while it starts off as a political move, Henry VIII wants to dominate England without papal interference. The king, not Rome, will have the final say of what is best for England. The doctrinal reforms of the Church of England come as a result of the shift in the political environment. So it's men like Thomas Cramner who simply take advantage of the opportunities afforded by their political changes. And with Henry's death and the ascension to the throne of Edward VI, major changes are coming. Right? Any questions about Henry VIII? I don't know if he sang a song, Henry VIII, I am, I am. I only come to Wednesdays for, say, for Sandy. <laughs> that and I enjoy teaching. Right? Okay. Any questions about Henry? Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, go. Yes and, yes and no. That's a good question. Right? What's funny is he's still considered a defender of the faith. Right? Uh, but then they're like, oh, but he kind of made, you know, we'll brush their other stuff under the rug. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, hey, Henry VIII, he was king. He was defender of the faith. All that other stuff, we won't talk about. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And as we'll see under Mary, the Cramner problem is taken care of. Right? Edward VI. 1537 to 1553, he's 15 when he dies. Here's a picture of him. The boy king, right? He is nine when his father dies and ascends to the throne, right? He's very sickly and has been all of his life, right? His reign is marked by two regencies. You know what a regency is? A regency is basically somebody who rules in your stead because you're not old enough. You have to be 18 to rule on your own, right? The first regency is... Duke of Somerset, Edward Seymour, his uncle, right? Jane Seymour is his mother. Edward Seymour is his, her brother. So the Duke of Somerset is his uncle, right? Edward was a very, or Edward Seymour is a very pious yet politically astute individual. And through a series of four laws, or laws, excuse me, four important reforms take place. Series of laws. Communion in both kinds is restored to the laity. Remember, both kinds means you get the host and the, and the wine. Normally, regular people just got the bread, just the, the host, okay? Two, clergy are allowed to marry. That's big, right? Okay. Three, icons and images are all removed from the church. So he just follows up on Henry VIII's iconoclasm. Last but not least, the Book of Common Prayer of 1549 authored by Cramner, is introduced as the liturgy for the English in their language. And it's right here. Right? That's what I read that prayer out of this morning. Okay? 
However, Edward soon falls out of favor. It's a long story, but he's executed on Tower Hill in January of 1552. Okay? His second regency is John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. Yeah? Oh, yeah, Edward, Edward, the Duke, Edward, Duke of Somerset, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Edward VI dies of illness. He's only 15. Yeah. Edward was a family name, so, and everybody was named Edward or John back then, so everyone, you know, it's hard, it's easy to get. I should have just said the Duke of Somerset was executed uh, on Tower Hill in January 1552. The second one is John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, right? So the Duke of Northumberland, very astute politician, not so pious. Right? But during his time, the Book of Common Prayer is revised. It's a language shift uh, between the Continental Reformers and Catholic language. Basically, it, the, the shift comes in communion. Originally, in the, the original 1549 version, uh, the language in communion sounds a lot like transubstantiation, that the the bread and the blood become the body of Christ. In this new edition, the language is turned into Zwinglian and Calvin, and it's very memorial, meaning do this in remembrance of me. So there's that shift. We'll see under Elizabeth that they combine both of those languages. So when you read it today out of this new edition, it still retains the Elizabethan language of, of almost transubstantiation plus a memorial view. They do a great job, well, I'll read it later, but they do a great job of combining both of the languages, all right? It's called the Via Medea in Elizabethan politics. We'll get to that, okay? Edward dies in July of 1553. So the major thing under the Duke of Northumberland is the revision of the language in communion in the Book of Common Prayer to a more memorial, do this in remembrance of me type language. Edward dies in July of 1553, all right, in a highly complicated story. The Duke of Northumberland persuades Edward to call Mary Tudor and Elizabeth, his half-sisters, illegitimate heirs to the throne. All right, so Edward revises his will, says, I don't want Mary or Elizabeth, my sisters, to come to the throne. They're illegitimate, all right? Instead, the line of secession goes to his first cousin, Lady Jane Grey, all right? Jane Grey just happened to be married to Lord Guilford Dudley, all right? Now, the Duke of Northumberland's last name is also Dudley, right? Lord Guilford Dudley is the Duke's son. So that makes the Duke a very powerful individual, right? Okay. Lady Jane uh, Grey is de facto queen for nine days, the 10th of July to the 19th of July, 1553, Mary and the Duke of Northumberland duke it out. Uh, they go into battle. The Duke actually soils himself and goes whimpering back and says, don't kill me, I'll do whatever you want, right? But Mary goes, oh, heck no. To the tower he goes, right? He's beheaded at Tower Hill in August of 1553, just a month after, all right? And then Lady Jane Grey is executed on Tower Hill, ex uh, beheaded, in February of 1554 at the age of 17. That sucks, right? But that's all right. That's politics. Now let's look at Mary Tudor, 
questions about Edward. He reigns for, 50, he reigns for six years. <laughs> you had one job, Waters. We got the Jane Seymour joke. Now it's all over. All right. That's all right. Okay. There she is. Mary Tudor or Mary the First, right? Uh, Mary has made her chip on her shoulder. She lives from 1518 to 1556, right? She has a major chip on her shoulder. Her father, Henry VIII, declares his marriage to her mother, Catherine of Aragon, Knoll. That's the first one, right? This leaves Mary an illegitimate child. That's the second one. It's a massive dishonor to be called an illegitimate kid especially royalty, right? And on top of all that, she's kept from seeing her mother for most of her life. So not only are you fatherless, but you're illegitimate, your bloodline's been taken away from you, and you can't even see your mother. So you're basically motherless. You're basically a parented orphan in some ways. Legit legally, you're an orphan, right? So her right to succession is doubted, and for these reasons, she was committed to restoring England to Roman Catholicism, right? With her support of her cousin, Charles V, right? Remember, Catherine's his aunt. That makes Mary and Charles V cousins, right? See how fun this gets? It's like this. And they're all tied together, right? She reigns for almost five and a half years, but they are very violent years, right? She first consolidates her power, then tries to strengthen her, or then strengthens her ties to Spain by marrying her other cousin, Philip, who later becomes Philip II of Spain, right? Does that make sense? Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, her cousin, Philip II, her cousin, they're still trying to make a solid alliance, but they're both heavily... Spain's still heavily Catholic, and she's trying to restore Catholicism to England, so it makes sense to make a political move of tying all that together. Okay? By 1554, she's beginning to take measured movements against Protestantism. In 1554, she officially re returns England to the obedience of the Pope. Feast days of saints are restored Married clergy are told to put away their wives. You just have to up and divorce them. Actually, they didn't. You just were forced to abandon them or die. And a lot of priests chose to die. Right? Tells a lot about their character. Some land that was taken by her father was returned to the Catholic Church. But open persecution of Protestants and their leaders begins. And in roughly five and a half years, Mary has put to death almost 300 people. That's basically one a week. Okay. All that was done by Henry and Edward is undone by Mary. Right. And the biggest thing she has done is she puts to death Thomas Cramner, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley, whom we call the Oxford Martyrs because they are killed in Oxford, England at Oxford University. Mary's goal is to have Cramner, head of the reformers and reforms, recant. That would be a huge moral victory for the Catholics. Okay? 
His case was sent to Rome because he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is condemned as a heretic there and burned in effigy, right? Because he's still in England. You can't burn somebody if they're not there in front of you, right? Cramner, Latimer, and Ridley are arrested in 1553, but their trials don't begin until 1555. Latimer and Ridley were tried on the 11th of October, 1555, and are immediately found guilty of heresy. They are burned at the stake on October 16th, 1555. October the 16th is my birthday. Right? Huh? Oh, and Marie, and Marie Antoinette is executed on my birthday. Angela Lansbury and I had the same birthday day, too, so Yeah. Okay, so while the flames are going up around them, Latimer is famous for saying to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's a pretty powerful witness. Cramner is forced in his prison cell to watch all of this, right, knowing that his day is coming. And by that time, his verdict from Rome arrives and in December 1555, under the duress of torture, he writes a recantation of Protestant theology and swears to return to the Catholic Church. Now, anyone who recants is supposed to have a stay of execution. But Mary wants to make him an example. And so she goes ahead and, make, and orders his execution. So he is burned at the stake on March 21st, 1556, Cramner is to give a public recantation, and instead he speaks of his weaknesses, he speaks of his sins, but he withdraws his recantation, and he says, and for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all of his false doctrines. Right? And then he held up his right hand, and he goes, this hand, because it wrote the recantations, this hand shall be first punished. And as the flames are coming up around him, he holds his right hand into the flame until it is nothing but a charred stump, and then he gives up the ghost. He is 66 years old. He is an old man for that time. Cramner's martyrdom only bolsters English Protestants, and it becomes clear to Mary that she must result to harsher measures. But she doesn't live to see those measures enforced, for she dies of uterine cancer on the 17th of November, 1558. Mary Tudor is a very tragic historical figure, all right? She's called Bloody Mary because she's killed 300 people within five and a half years. But to be honest, that's not fair. Everybody's killing each other, burning people at the stakes for heresy, right? She's abandoned by her father. She's kept from her mother. She's called an illegitimate child, so her honor is removed. She is a devout Catholic what she wants was her honor restored and for the church to be one, i.e. Catholic. She is given the unfortunate moniker Bloody Mary by, by those who oppose her. And on honesty, her execution of heretics, nothing new. The only difference is the large amount that happens during her short reign. Right. She spent her entire life trying to prove to others, her country and her church, that she was worthy of the crown and therefore worthy of recognition as a human being. And despite her desires to be buried next to her mother in Peterborough Cathedral, Mary was buried in Westminster Abbey. Anybody been to Westminster Abbey? You can see her coffin there. We'll get to that in a second. 
Let's look at her sister Elizabeth, and then we'll close. Right. I'm going to go 10 minutes over it again tonight, but this is too good to stop. Right. Elizabeth, 1533 to 1603. Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne, of Anne Boleyn. She was the last of the Tudor monarchs. James I begins the House of Stuart. She's about three, old, three years old when her mother is beheaded, and her half-sister Mary, who is now 17 by the time of Anne Boleyn's death, helps to raise her because she too knew how it felt to lose her mother and be declared illegitimate by her father. When Mary reigned, Elizabeth's life was spared by Mary after Charles V repeatedly suggested that Mary execute her, her uh, half-sister. Mary was like, I'm not going to do that. She's called the Virgin Queen, not because of those reasons, but because she never married. She's also called Good Queen Bess. And she ascends to the throne on the death of her sister in November of 1558. Philip II of Spain, who was married to Mary, Tudor, right, attempts to marry Elizabeth. And Elizabeth goes, no. Not only no, but heck no. Now stop asking. And he continues to try to work. That's not the cause of the Armada. That's something else, right? But close enough, right? Okay. Uh, the colony of Virginia is named for her. If you didn't know that, the Commonwealth of Virginia is. Her reign of 44 years marks her the third longest reigning in English monarchy. Notice I said English, right? She is ninth when you count the unification of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland into Great Britain. When she ascends to the throne, England is bitterly divided between Catholicism and Protestantism. And Elizabeth was a Protestant. She was devout out of political necessity and out of her love for God. So she's devout for devout reasons and political necessity. And her ascension to the throne undid the policies of her half-sister. Pope Paul IV, who's now Pope by this time, Clement VII is dead, was ready to declare Elizabeth a legitimate daughter of Henry VIII if only Elizabeth continued in the Roman communion. Elizabeth responded by not even letting the Pope know of her ascension, and instead she quietly recalls the English ambassador back to Rome, or uh, the English ambassador from Rome back to England. Right? So she's just like, I'm going to do what's best for me and for England. So you don't need to know what my business is. I don't need to know what your business is. Therefore, no, right? And she's convinced, she was convinced, as was her father, uh, had been correct in naming himself head of the Church of England, that she would not waver from that conviction. So if my dad is the head of the church, I am head of the church, even as a woman. That's huge politically. That's huge during the 16th century. To say that the, a woman is the head of the church, it's big. Elizabeth has the political astuteness to work through all of that, right? Her policies for the church are not extreme. They really truly aren't, right? And by her death in 1603, uh, the end of the English Reformation takes place. Her death marks the end of it, right? But let's look at what actually happens in the church to mark the English Reformation during her reign. Her changes are often called the Elizabethan religious settlement. 
the Elizabethan religious settlement. And basically it's three, sometimes considered four, articles or laws that are passed. Right? Notice all of these are acts and laws. Right? Remember, the English Reformation is a giant magisterial reformation. It's just from the top down as opposed to a priest working within the laws of the country. Right? This one's done. You can't go any higher than the king. Right? That's what Henry VIII says. Can't go any higher than you. The Pope goes, yes, I can, and England goes, no. Okay? So under the Elizabethan religious settlement, you have the Act of Supremacy, 1558. So the Act of Supremacy, 1558. And it reestablishes the Church of England's independence from Rome. And Parliament gives Lizzie the title Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Who is the current Supreme Governor of the Church of England? Lizzie II. Right? They still hold that title. Okay. Then came the Act of Uniformity, 1559. So you have the Act of Supremacy, 1558. The Act of Uniformity, 1559. It reintroduces the Book of Common Prayer. Okay. This is the new, uh, the new edition, the one in 1559, is often called the definitive edition of Cramner's work, though Cramner had been dead for four years. Right? So basically, they just took his notes and edited them and said, here's the new one. In this one, the language used to describe the Eucharist conveys both a Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed wordery. Right, so it talks a little bit about consubstantiation, and then it says, and do this in remembrance of me. So they just combined the language. Right? Okay. But the big one are the 39 articles. Right? Every book of common prayer has the 39 articles in the back. Right? And the 39 articles are literally a constitution that sets up the Church of England. Right? First written in 1562, <clears throat> the adherence to the Articles was made legal by Parliament in 1571. So when you open this up to find them, luckily it has a contents. 39 Articles, 772, it says, it gives the 1551 date. It says, the 39 Articles of Religion of 1571, because that was the, the year that Parliament made it mandatory that the Church of England followed these guidelines. Right? 39 Articles, 39 steps that say, hey, this is how we're going to you know, work as a club. Right? It's their little club charter. Right? Serves as a doctrinal foundation for the Church of England, and there's no attempt between, to choose between the Protestant theologies and so the articles attempt to perform what they call a, or achieve a via media, V-I-A space M-E-D-I-A, via media, literally the middle way. So they take all of the Protestant theologies and they say, okay, how do we aim this sucker right down the middle so that I can be Lutheran or hold to Lutheran understandings of communion and baptism? Or how can I be Anabaptist or Zwinglian and hold to their memorial view of communion? Right? So you can be both within the Church of England. Right? The bad news is they have no room for Catholicism in the 39 Articles. Right? So you, uh, they make it clear that Roman Catholics and diehard Protestants are not welcome. So super radical reformers 
not so much. Right? Catholics, not so much. So that leaves us her policies towards Catholics. Catholicism holds a very precarious position during Elizabeth's reign. Right? Multiple conspiracies were brought in place throughout her reign in hopes of removing her from the throne, and they're always done by Catholics. One of them is her cousin, Mary Stuart. Right? We'll talk about her next week in the Scottish Reformation. Right? Uh, the Pope, Paul IV, tells English Catholics that they don't have to listen to what the Queen says. So don't listen to the laws of England. Right? You are free from any obligation of obedience to Elizabeth, is what his language says. Right? So you're free to be subservient, or excuse me, uh, submiss- uh, subversive to the queen. Right? Basically outlawed, though, Catholics meet in secret. Catholic priests pour in from the continent. Many of them are arrested, many of them are executed. And Catholic conspirators are arrested and executed left and right mainly because they want to dethrone the queen. That's treason. In her reign, though, almost 300 persons are arrested and executed. Now, that seems like a lot, but she basically reigns for 45 years, so that's like one a month. No. One every six weeks. It's not too bad, considering. So, you know, not bad. Those numbers are a little low. We could have asked for higher numbers, but they weren't. However, towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, most of the English Catholics begin to realize that they they could differentiate between their religious obedience to the Pope and their political national obedience to the monarch. And mainly that's because, A, they got tired of the Spanish, and B, they were beginning to find these really cool lands to the west, right, in the New World, right, and there was a lot of money to be made. So they're like, oh, I can be a Catholic and I can still swear allegiance to Elizabeth. Why? Because, you know, I can get money from the queen, you know, a royal charter. Men like John Cabot are such men. So they would eventually be allowed to practice their religion openly by the time Elizabeth dies in 1603. She is buried in Westminster Abbey. She shares a tomb with her half-sister Mary. James I, when he succeeds Elizabeth, has inscribed on their tomb, Regno consortis et urna, hic obdermimus Elizabeth et Maria sorores in spade resurrectionis, which means consorts in realm and tomb. Here we sleep, Mary and Elizabeth, sisters, in hope of the resurrection. And with her death, the English Reformation comes to a close. Questions? Yes, sir. Correct. <laughs> they they also changed the language to Supreme Governor because Henry is male and Elizabeth is female, right? So it allows movement because they begin to understand. Oh, hey, you know we've got queens and queens that come all over the place, right? So if I call you Supreme Governor. You can be male and female and use that same title, which is why Elizabeth II is still called the Supreme Governor and everybody before that. 
Uh, yeah, Calvin. Calvin's uh, theology is big in the Church of England. Um, so is Zwingli. Uh, Luther has some, but also John Wycliffe, who was 150 years beforehand. So, uh, you know, we understand Christ to be the head of the church, but you can govern the church, right? Catholic language is head of the church, right? So basically what Henry becomes is the Pope of England, right, for all intents and purposes. And, and in this case, Mary just, or Elizabeth just has uh, political power over the church, though she's still considered the person that determines how the religion of the country goes. So goes the queen or the monarch, so goes the church. Right? And so there's still a connection of church and state uh, in that regards. Other questions? Okay. Let's, uh, let's pray. Waters, you want to pray? Close this?